In the 1970s, the American Express card had a slogan, and it was, don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without it. Now, there are a few things that I don't want to leave home without. One of them is my cell phone. I have become so dependent on my cell phone that I feel naked without it. It's amazing how quickly we can become dependent upon such things, but I use it to make and receive phone calls, of course, also text messages, to act as my GPS and find destination to places. I have my Bible and study tools on my iPhone as well, and I really miss it when I don't have it with me, but it's not absolutely essential that I have my cell phone with me when I leave. There are some things that are actually essential for me to have when I leave the house. Uh, one of such a uh, group of things are my diabetic supplies. I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic. I take insulin four times a day. I give myself a shot before each meal and at bedtime every night. So when I leave the house, I take a monitor to give me a readout of my blood sugar level so I know how much insulin to take. I take the test strips so that the monitor works. I take a syringe to minister the insulin. And of course, I carry the necessary insulin itself. If I forget it, I turn around and go home. I need it. I have to have it. One thing that every one of us should be careful to take with us when we leave the house is the gospel. We are not to leave the gospel on the shelf. Why? Why should we take the gospel with us wherever we go? Our context continues to address the issues associated with God's sovereignty and human responsibilities as it relates to salvation. Chapter 9 emphasized the sovereignty of God, and chapter 10 emphasizes the responsibility of man. One very common objection to the doctrine of election is stated in the form of a question. People will ask, if God has chosen people to salvation, then why do we need to evangelize? The answers to that are actually myriad. They range from because God has told us to evangelize, Thus, we evangelize out of obedience to God. To evangelize brings honor and glory to God. Thus, we're motivated to evangelize as out of a desire to exalt Him. And the third reason is the reason that is set forth in our text today, namely, because God has ordained that it is through evangelism that people are going to be saved. Thus, we're motivated to evangelize out of a genuine need for people to hear the gospel in order for them to be brought into a saving relationship with Christ. God has not only ordained the ends, he's also ordained the means when it comes to salvation. He's not only chosen those that will be saved, but also the means by which they are going to be saved. How are people going to be saved? They will be saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. If you look at Romans 10, 13, we were there last week. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Calling upon the name of the Lord does not take place in a vacuum, however. There are necessary conditions that must be met if people are going to call upon the name of the Lord. These necessary conditions are laid out in a series of four rhetorical questions. Each question has the anticipated answer, they cannot. And to illustrate this point, I am going to read the questions in our text. And after each question, I want you to respond audibly, out loud, with the answer, they cannot. I'll read the question, you respond, they cannot. Starting with Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So we want to unpack those four rhetorical questions this morning. They hearken back to verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we have in these verses the conditions that are necessary for a person to call upon the name of the Lord. The they in these verses, 14 and following, are intentionally vague and thus universal. The they includes both Jew and Gentile. The they includes every single human being. It includes, as I say, everyone. Therefore, we have in verses 14 and 15 a universal set of conditions that are necessary for anyone who's going to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So let's look at these four conditions. First, the first necessary condition for people to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved is that they need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? We found out that last week that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. That is why in the first five verses of chapter 10, Paul lays out the fact that many of his Jewish brethren are in need of salvation because they have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We saw that there is this relationship that we're to have to Jesus Christ, that we acknowledge his lordship, and we discussed that at length last week, and then said it's not simply that we declare his lordship, but we actually believe and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we need this belief in Jesus. The question is now raised, well, how is someone going to believe in, how are they going to call upon Jesus without believing in him? And the answer is they cannot. I'm going to go quickly through these preliminary questions and then spend our time on the last two. The second necessary condition 
for people to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved is that they need to hear about Christ. Notice verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Secondly, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In order for people to believe and call upon Christ, they must hear about Christ. So for someone to believe that Jesus is Lord, they need to hear that Jesus is Lord. For someone to believe that Jesus died and rose again, they need to hear that Jesus died and rose again. These are very elementary thoughts. The third necessary condition for a person to believe, hear, and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved is that someone must tell them about the Lord. Someone must tell them. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 14. People have no way of knowing about Christ if someone doesn't tell them about Christ. We learned earlier in the book of Romans that there are three sources of knowledge about God. The first source of knowledge about God is creation. By simply looking at creation, we can see that there is a creator. And not only can we see that there is a creator, but there are certain things that we can know about the creator, such as that he was wise. We can see that some intelligent being had to create this universe as we see it and know it. The second thing that we can see is that this creator is powerful. So Romans chapter one, verses 19 and says, because that which may be known by God is manifest in them, for God showed it unto him, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so they're without excuse. So the Bible says there's no excuse in not believing that there is a creator God. No excuse. All mankind can see that there is a creator God simply by looking at what he has made. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day utter a speech, night unto night showeth forth knowledge. So the universe screams that there is a creator God and that he exists. The second source of knowledge uh, that we have about God comes from our conscience. Our conscience. That comes in chapter 2. Our conscience teaches us that we are sinners and have done wrong. In finding fault with others, we should find fault with ourselves, for we do the same things. So Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou doest the same thing, and condemnest thyself. So every time I look at somebody and find fault with what they do, it reveals a moral conscience, and in finding fault with others, that finger should point right back to us because we do the same things that we find fault with in others. If we find fault with them, 
why don't we find fault with us? So the scripture teaches that we can look at creation and see there's a God. We can look inwardly in our conscience and see that we are sinful, that we do things that we ourselves condemn. But what we cannot discern from creation and what we will never learn from an inward look to our conscience is that there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. The only way we are going to know and understand that is if somebody reveals it to us. If someone tells it to us. Paul, of course, is the supreme example of sharing the word of God with others. If you look at verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word of faith is the word that brings faith. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. In verse 14, it says, how shall they hear without someone preaching? Now, we're not to understand preaching in the exclusive sense. It's not saying that somebody has to be behind a pulpit. It's not even saying that it needs to be proclaimed in the same way that we think of, of a servant, of a sermon being preached. The emphasis is not on the activity as it is on the content. The idea is that, that you must hear the message. Somehow, that message may come to you. It may come in the form of materials being disseminated. It can come in forms of literature, gospel tracts, radio messages. It can come in a variety of ways. But the point is, you must hear the message. And mankind is the instrument to take that message to others. That without human input, that tract isn't going to be written. Without human input, that radio message isn't going to be on the air. Without human input, people are not going to hear the gospel. So fourthly, and I will s slow down more here, the fourth necessary condition for people in order for someone to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, someone has to be sent to them. Verse 15. And how are they to be preached unless they are sent? Not only must the person go, but our passage states they must be sent. Being sent carries with it three important connotations. This morning I was really, really tempted. I would love to have ended our service with uh, the hymn, As My Father Has Sent Me, So Send I You, except that the words don't at all go with the reality of what it means to be sent. Uh, let's look at what it means to be sent. First, the person who is sent operates under a higher authority. He does not go of his own initiative, but by another's initiative. So we ask the question, who is the sender? 
No one goes unless they be sent. Who is the sender? Originally, the sender is God the Father, who sent his Son into this world. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son into the world. We saw last week that there is not a pilgrimage. We don't go up into heaven in order to bring Christ down. We don't go down in the earth in order to bring Christ up. God sent his son into this world. And now we find in John chapter 20 that it is Jesus who sends us. Jesus therefore said to them again, peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Our call to worship this morning came from Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, which read, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It is Jesus who sends out laborers into his harvest. It is Jesus who sends us to Others with a gospel message. The second implication is the person who is sent goes out not with his own message, but the message of another. The gospel message does not come from our initiative, but is delivered to us by God to be taken to others. Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So when I recognize that I am sent by God, it means that I must take with him, with me, the message that he gives. I can't decide what to say. I can't tweak the gospel. I can't present it in such a way that I think it's going to be more effectual or beneficial. Having been sent by God, it means that we have a responsibility to speak what God has given us to speak. Nothing more and nothing less. The third element that we understand by being sent is that the person who is sent is motivated not by the receiver, but by the sender. Why do we go? Answer, because we are sent. Why do we go? It's because Jesus has commanded us to do so. It is not because we are invited by others to share the gospel with them. It is not because people have asked us to come. Please come and share the gospel with us. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 20. Then 
Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Isaiah didn't go to people who were inviting Isaiah over. Isaiah, come over and share the gospel with us. Isaiah, won't you tell me how to be saved? Isaiah says, I went to people who did not ask for me. We are not waiting for people to invite us to share the gospel. We are taking the gospel to all people because God has told us to do that. Because Jesus has commanded it. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We go because we're sent. We go because we are sent. So then, the fact that people are sent has both practical and theological implications. I wasn't sure which to do first, but I'm going to look at the theological implications first and then the practical. First, the theological applications and implications. Romans chapters 1 through 9 do not exist in a vacuum. They are not to be separated from 10 and what is following. They are leading up and explanatory to what is essential for us to understand. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. That's what God says. No one seeks for God. Bill Hybels refers to himself as a one-point Calvinist. He is the guru of what has become known as the seeker-friendly service. That is, the church should be sensitive and helpful to those who are seeking Christ. That we must order our service so that it is going to make people feel comfortable, welcome, and hopefully that they, as a result, are going to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A seeker-friendly service. The problem is with the presupposition. There is no one who seeks for God. There is no kind of music. There is no kind of lighting. There is no atmosphere that is going to result in people placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation is the result of the divine initiative. Note again the words of Isaiah. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. Now, on rare occasions, people may, in fact, ask us how to be saved. First Peter, verse 15 of chapter 3, says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, that you do it with gentleness and respect. It comes in a passage that deals with suffering. 
suffering, whether that suffering be because of persecution, whether that suffering be because of physical suffering, whatever the case may be, but, but we have a hope in our suffering. We have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that some people may ask us, what's the basis of that hope? What are you trusting in? Why do you have confidence and allegiance in the midst of this suffering? And you'll have an opportunity to respond. But we need to understand that that is, first of all, the exception and not the rule. That is not the normative way in which the scripture talks about us sharing our faith. Now, we can see that such opportunities are present and they are are forceful. For example, Paul and Silas, when they're in prison, it tells us in Acts chapter 16 about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's hands were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It was such an incredible experience. An earthquake, chains falling off, people singing hymns in the midst of all their suffering, and the jailer cries out and says, what must I do to be saved? That's not the normative. It's the exception. And even in that exception, Paul had to be in the presence of the jailer. We have to be in the presence of the person who sees our suffering, who sees the work of God within us. The command of Jesus is that we are sent into this world to be sharing the gospel with others. In John chapter 17, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he says this, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. That we are following the example of Jesus. God sent him into this world, and now Jesus sends us into the world around about us. We are sent out to be sharing the gospel with others. Well, let's look at the practical implications. The practical implications. First, last week we said that it is easy for a person to be saved. We talked about how a person doesn't have to go on a spiritual journey in order to be saved. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8, it says, well, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim to you. Paul said it's easy for you to be saved. It's near you. It's, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. For we have proclaimed it to you. The context, if you remember, was you don't have to go up into heaven 
to bring it down. You don't have to go into lower parts of the earth and bring Christ up. It's right there. It's readily available to you. But we need to understand that the gospel is not readily available to everyone. It is not within their earshot. It is not close. They have not heard. And so we must proclaim it to them. But again, not requiring them to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. It's not come over here so that you can hear the word and be saved. It's go over there so they can hear the word and be saved. It is not to bring people to hear the word. It's take the word to them. Which brings us to the second practical application. And that is that we need to employ a missional approach to evangelism as opposed to an attractional approach to evangelism. Uh, many have heard lately the word missional is popping up everywhere and with good reason and with good content. The emphasis of missional theology is that we are on a mission that God has given a responsibility to every single believer, and that is to take the gospel to others. That is our function. That is our role. That is what we are to be about, wherever we are. In uh, Matthew, the Great Commission, go ye therefore is really, uh, it's a participle. It's as you go, as you are going. That's why I use the analogy of take the gospel with you. As you are going, where God leads you, where you have a spirit of influence, where you come in contact with other people, you're to be sharing the gospel to them. We take the gospel to others. Unfortunately, in the last about 60 years, and with a strong emphasis on the last 40 years, the church in America moved from a missional model to an attractional model. Meaning that rather than take the gospel to people, the means became, let's do things so that people will come and hear the gospel. It became church-centered. It became invite people to church. It came to be make the church attractive. Make the church a desirable place. Bring people in to hear the word of God. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the worship service is that. It's to worship God. And you can't worship God if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. They that worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. You can't worship God if you don't know Jesus Christ. In order to worship God, you must know Christ. The purpose of the church is to worship. And then secondly, the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the, for the work of Christ. It is to be a place of instruction. It's to be a place of teaching. And evangelism is to go on out there. Not in here, for it will water down 
What goes on in here if this becomes the place of evangelism? If this becomes the place of reaching the lost? So the emphasis these last numbers of years have been on establishing a seeker-friendly church service. Services that would in some way entice the non-believer to come so that they will hear the word of God. This seeker-friendly service has not resulted in people being saved. It's, It's certainly resulted in church growth, but it's resulted in church growth by attracting people from one church to another. So we have larger and larger churches, but most of them not as a result of conversion growth, but as an attractional model, but they have drawn Christians from other churches. So that today we have more churches closing than we have churches that are opened. According to Focus on the Family, from 2007 to today, they are, there are 8% less Christians in America. Christianity is on the decline. It's not on the rise. 8% less fewer Christians today. We have some mega churches, but it's deceiving, for we're moving people around. Let me give you an example, okay, the kinds of things that people are talking about in order to be an attractional model. One of the popular things uh, in the last few years has been to have Super Bowl parties at a church on a Sunday night. So we know that Super Bowl is going to take place on a Sunday night. So let's have a Super Bowl party, and at halftime, we'll present the gospel. And we will tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and how to be saved. Now think with me for a moment. If you're a non-Christian, unchurched, no relationship to God whatsoever, how do you think being invited to the church to watch the Super Bowl is going to be attractive to you? Where are you going to want to watch the football game? Oh, I didn't realize the church had it. Let's go over there. Most people are going to want to go to a friend's house or a bar or a place where they can drink and where they can watch the game. Who goes to church to watch the Super Bowl and hear the gospel in the middle of the service? Answer, Christians who feel like they ought to be in church but would really like to see the Super Bowl game and so cut their church service in order to go to a church where they can do both, where they can worship and where they... It attracts Christians. It attracts Christians. The point is not to argue theological method. The point is, what what does the word teach us? What does it say? It says go. It doesn't say attract. The third practical application, and I know I'm stepping on sensitive toes, but I don't shy away from what the word teaches. 
The third practical application is that the motivation for a person's going is to be there being sent. Notice verse uh, 14, I think it is. How shall they go unless they be sent? Again, in this attractional age, in this man-centered age that we live in, where the emphasis is on human thought as opposed to the Word of God, it has become normative to say that the way that you're going to interest people in missions is to expose them to it. The best way to get people interested in missions is short-term missions. Take them overseas where they can see the need. And in seeing the need, then they are going to want to respond and they are going to want to become a missionary and they are going to want to serve the Lord. Well, we could argue that on many different terms. We could look at it just practically and say, well, what is the long-term result? How many of these people have stayed in full-time service, et cetera, et cetera? We could look at all of the numbers, but I would say let us look at it theologically. How did missions go on before 50 years ago? Before there was the opportunity to Skype before there was the opportunity to buy a plane ticket, before there was even cargo ships in which you'd spend six months getting there. How in the world did the gospel spread for centuries if that's what's required? Answer, God raised up missionaries. God raised up individuals who went because they had a sense of duty and privilege to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the God-given means by which we are to raise up people to take the gospel to the utter ends of the earth? What is the God-given means? Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. What are you to do? You are to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Cry out unto God that he would move in our hearts and that he would raise up individuals. What caused Paul to go on his three missionary journeys? It was the revelation that he had from God of the need that he had to serve God and to take the gospel to others. This morning, If we don't have a desire to reach people for Christ, what's the solution? We really need to pray about it. We really need to pray that God would would stir our hearts. That God would give us a passion. 
that God would give us a concern for his glory, obedience, and understanding that the only way in which people are going to be saved is for them to hear. And the God-given way is to take the gospel to them. Take the gospel to them. So again, this morning, my application is when you leave the home, take the gospel with you. Don't leave it on a shelf. Share the gospel with others. Believe that they are going to be saved. This taking the gospel to others is emphasized in, as I said, Romans 10, verse 20, where it said, Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown themselves to those who did not ask for me. There, there it is in our text. But look with me at the end of verse 15. How are they to preach unless they be sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now think of that imagery for a moment. Think of what it says. How beautiful are the feet to those who preach good news. Why would it say feet? Why not mouth? How beautiful the mouth of those who preach the good news. Why not the tongue? How beautiful the tongue of those who preach good news. The great hymn, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Why the feet? Because the emphasis is on taking the gospel. How beautiful are those who take the gospel to others, who walk the walk, who actually make it possible for other people to hear by going where they are. How beautiful are their feet. It is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 52, let me read Isaiah 52, 7. It says this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful when people have brought the gospel to us. It's the response. This morning, aren't you thankful for the person who shared the gospel with you? Aren't you thankful for that influence? Aren't you grateful that someone told you how to be saved? 
Every one of us is saved by the grace of God. And every one of us has been influenced somehow by a human being who made it possible for us to hear the word. Even if it's simply the Gideons who put the Bible in the hotel room. How beautiful. How beautiful. Beautiful for it fulfills the plan of God in saving people. Beautiful for people will be saved. Beautiful because it glorifies God. Beautiful because it's the obedient response that we have to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us be sure that when we leave the house, we take the gospel with us. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray this morning, you who are the Lord of the harvest, that you would raise up laborers and send them forth into your harvest. Lord, I pray, first of all, for every one of us that we would be mindful of the responsibility we have to be sure that those people that we come in contact with have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we recognize our responsibilities and privileges to share the good news with others. Lord, give us boldness that we are not waiting for people to come to us, but like Isaiah, we go to people who have not asked of us. We talk to people who haven't begun the conversation with us. We begin the conversation. Oh, Lord, give us a sense of being sent, a sense of being empowered, a sense that that your spirit goes before us, that we're not left on our own. This is not something that we do of our own undertaking. We are not running ahead of you. But, Lord, you have gone before us. And you are ministering. And your word is going to be the effectual agent. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't bring people to Christ. We don't persuade people to be saved. We don't remove the barriers so that people can trust in you. We don't create the ideal atmosphere so that people will respond. It is your word that saves people. May we be confident of that. And Lord, as in we are confident of that, may we share your word with others, knowing that it will be resulting in the salvation of your people. Lord, I pray that you would also raise up from our midst people who are going to go out of their way in order to share, people, share the gospel with people that have never heard. Not just locally, but globally. Lord, may, may you from our midst send forth individuals that are going to want to take the gospel to places where it's never reached. Do a work in us to your glory, to your praise, and to the salvation of the lost. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.